We come back to a world where 70 to 80 percent of Americans are worried about the future. Where 70 to 90 percent of Americans think the country is going in a wrong direction. Where 60 to 70 percent of Americans are disenchanted and have a negative view of the two leading candidates for the presidency. 60 to 70 percent have negative views of the candidates. And these are historic lows, historic lows. 70 to 80 percent are frustrated and angry with the federal government. This is the world that we've come back to. Many people realize our problems are serious today, but they have no idea how to solve the problems. No idea how to solve the problems. And they have no hope that our problems are going to get any better. You know, the contrast. We come back from the feast very excited, very enthused, very focused. We come back to a world that really has very little hope. This is kind of the state of the union. The state of the union in the greatest nation on the face of the earth. What's happening in America today? And what's happening in the Western world? Why are these things happening today? that we see in the news and around us every day. Where are these things leading? Now, we have, an under, we have an understanding of where things are leading, but the world doesn't have that understanding. We have a hope for the future that the world does not have. But what do these events have to do with you, with me, and with the church of God today? I appreciated the sermonette about working. We've got a big work to do. We've got a big job to do that we've come back to here in Charlotte and with our members around the world. What I'd like to do in the sermon today is to address the questions that I just asked. What is happening in America and the Western world? Why are these things happening? Where is it leading to? And what do these events have to do with you, with me, and with the Church of God? If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 30, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hosea waged a war of words in these civilizations and the cultures that they were living in. They were pointing out the evils, the causes, the problems, and the hope for the future. And it's part of our job today to do the same thing. But in Jeremiah 30, and Jeremiah was actually one of a constellation of prophets, about half a dozen prophets in various parts of the Middle East at that time. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. Daniel was in the palace in Babylon. Ezekiel was out in the countryside in Babylon. And a number of other prophets were doing their job of warning about what was coming in the future. In Jeremiah 30, verse 7, it says, Alas, for that day is great. This is the day when Christ returns. So that none is like it. We are heading into a period of time that is like nothing. In history, it's a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob had 12 sons who became 12 tribes of Israel. So it's talking about a time at the end of the age when these tribes of Israel, these nations of Israel, are going to be in trouble. But they'll be saved out of it. You know, it's interesting in reading the prophecies in all of um, the prophets for that matter, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they have a very powerful negative message. Watch out, things are going to get very bad. 
But they also have a very positive message. You know, Isaiah is called a messianic prophet because he has so many prophecies about the coming kingdom of God. So all the prophets are not negative, and all their prophecies are not negative. There are many very powerful, positive prophecies. Because the time of Jacob's trouble is coming, he's, he, but he shall be saved out of it. Down in verse uh, <clears throat> 12. So for thus saith the Lord, your affliction is incurable. You know, many people are right today when they realize we don't see the solutions to our problems. They recognize that. And the people running for office don't have solutions. Your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There's no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines for all your lovers have forgotten you. You know, we're seeing this with the Philippines today where the president came in and you know, we have dumped a lot of money. We provided a lot of protection. And now he's playing footsies with the Chinese because they've got money. They've got money. And they're the bigger kid on the block than the Philippines are. So they've got to play up to that. Your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one. For the multitude of your iniquities, this is why our troubles are coming, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry out about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities. You know, what many people don't realize today, but I think we understand in the church, these prophecies are dual. These prophecies are dual. They applied to ancient Israel in the ancient world, but they are also going to apply and are applying today to the modern Israelite nations. I think it's very interesting that God has given his church an understanding of the identity of the modern Israelite nations that the world does not have. The world does not have that, so they don't understand these prophecies. I remember hearing a sermon on the internet some time ago where the guy was preaching. He says, you know, somebody asked me, where is America in Bible prophecy? And he said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. But this was a sermon on prophecy. I heard another minister say one time, I don't preach much about prophecy because I don't understand it. But God's church understands Bible prophecy, not perfectly. But we've got a handle that the world doesn't have because God has given us that understanding. So these prophecies are dual. Talking about Jeremiah's, uh, or Jer- excuse me, uh, Jacob's time of trouble. If you go down to the last verse in Jeremiah chapter 30, it talks about all these things are going to happen. But in the very last sentence of the last verse, verse 24, it says, In the latter days... At the end of the age, you will consider these prophecies. You will come to understand these prophecies. Look it up in some other translations. So at the end of the age, these prophecies are going to make sense. These prophecies are going to make sense as we approach the end of the age. About the um, descendants of Jacob being in deep trouble, having an incurable wound that they're, not, they're going to have to be saved out of by Jesus Christ. You know, whenever we understand the identity of the Israelite nations, these prophecies begin to explain what is happening in America and in the Western world today. 
So I'd like to focus for just a little bit here at the beginning. What has happened in America in the last couple hundred years? What is happening today in America and in the Western world today? I think when we look back historically, we begin to see a picture that sometimes we don't see when we look at the very immediate picture. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to talk about uh, world events, and he said people that look at the, the world right now, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you put it in a bigger picture. Until you put it in a bigger picture. When you look historically, what has happened to America from the founding up until now, it creates a very interesting picture. Came across a book recently entitled The Snapping of the American Mind. The Snapping of the American Mind. It's written by David Kapellian. He wrote the book uh, The Marketing of Evil. He's an immigrant to this country. Actually, his parents were. They came from Turkey. He's an Armenian. His dad got out of uh, Turkey about the same time that Mr. Pardian's parents put him on a boat and sent him out to get away from what they called the Armenian Holocaust, the massacres in Turkey. Because Turkey was trying to purge itself of these people that were not uh, uh, Muslims at that time. It's going to be interesting to see what Turkey does in the coming weeks and months. But he's talking about the snapping of the American mind. Uh, he's a journalist. He's the managing editor and vice president of WorldNet Daily. It's an online news service. But I wanted to read just a, a little bit from the first part of Chapter 2. He must be about my age and Mr. Weston's age, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit younger. Now, that's not ancient history. <laughs> but he grew up in the 50s. I was in high school during the 50s. The 50s were the happy days, the happy days when the Fonz had the television program and they were driving 55 and 56 and 57 Chevys. Uh, this, this was the happy days. But let me share his description. He says, because he's talking about what was, things were like in America in the 50s and what they are like today. For those of you that are younger, you know, the last five, ten years, well, things are about the same. Things are moving in the same direction. But when you look back a little bit further, it's an incredible contrast. Is when I was a child in the 1950s in suburban Washington, it was a relatively innocent time. It was a relatively innocent time. President Kennedy had not been assassinated. The great middle class was secure and prosperous for the most part. The nation was united fundamentally decent and altruistic. In other words, we were very generous. Divorce and family breakdown was rare compared to today. I barely even knew what abortion was. You just didn't hear about it. I said America was strong and flourishing and its culture was unapologetically Judeo-Christian. We didn't apologize for our belief system. We didn't apologize because everybody went to church, even though it was on Sunday. <laughs> Almost everybody did. I grew up in a small town in Ohio. We had about four or five churches. Almost everybody went to church. There was no Catholic church there. They had to go to another town. There was no bars. The movie theater was open on Saturday afternoon. 
the only time. It was a very peaceful time. We could ride our bike to school, walk home from school, nothing ever happened. I shoplifted some bubble gum one time in a store. I got home, and my mom said, where is it? <laughs> where is it? Where's what? The gum that you stole from the store. Well, how do you know? The lady called me. <laughs> she knew who you were. <laughs> this was the world that we lived in then. And it was the same thing for him. But then he says, um, but since the 1960s, we have begun living in a very different world. You know, in television in the 1950s, we watched Leave it to Beaver. We watched I Love Lucy. We watched um, <clears throat> um, some other very, uh, Father Knows Best. Now, today, Father doesn't know best at all. But these were the things we watched. It was a very peaceful time. He mentions that America was the greatest, freest nation on the planet, and the world knew it. The world knew it, and everybody wanted to come here. But that's not the world we're living in today. We had invasion in the 1960s. The Beatles from Britain, along with a bunch of other uh, outfits with their long hair and uh, uh, <clears throat> you know flamboyant clothes. The music at first wasn't so bad. You could dance to it, and it was kind of cute. But then they got into drugs, LSD and other things. They went to India to talk with some gurus over there, and they came back with some really wild ideas. They began, they began promoting free love, just abandon any type of guidelines. But these were the things that began to take place in the 1960s. And America became a very different country. Divorce skyrocketed. It just with no-fault divorce, families began to disintegrate. The language coarsened. You know, back in the 60s, they were talking about free speech, and then it became filthy speech. It just, it just progressed downhill. Entertainment became very violent, saturated with sex. The Supreme Court, and get this, and Capillian brings this out in his book, the Supreme Court outlawed prayer in school but approved abortion, where we started killing babies. They outlawed prayer, but they made abortion legal. These were some of the things that were taking place in 1960s, 1970s. You know, liberals today claim this acceptance and, uh, and equality of everything is progress and a change for the better. And yet 70 to 80% of our nation feel that the nation is moving in the wrong direction. And these things are not only taking place here. They're taking place in England. They're taking place in Western Europe. They're a little bit further ahead than we are. But they're taking place down in Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. These changes are moving in that wrong direction. We don't believe in looking at the Bible anymore for guidelines. And yet, you're familiar with the scriptures, Leviticus 18, verse 22. Leviticus 18:22 says, homosexuality is an abomination. And yet today it's being promoted. It's being promoted as a normal alternative lifestyle. This is the world we're living in. 
I came across a survey recently. It said 50, uh, <clears throat> it was 33% of Americans. 33% of Americans say that they could live with a homosexual or a lesbian being president. They could live with a homosexual or a lesbian being president. But only, I think only 7% said that they could live with an evangelical being president. Only 7% could live with an evangelical Christian being president. And yet 33%, put numbers to that. We've got about 330 million people living in this country. Over 100 million people could live with a homosexual or a lesbian being president. That would have never happened 30, 40 years ago. It would have never happened in colonial America. It just wouldn't have. But this is the world we're living in today. You know, numerous observers have commented and warned about over the last 25 years that we're witnessing, and this is the world we're witnessing today, the destruction of America. The destruction of America, the disintegration of the West and the demise of the greatest civilization the world has ever seen. And we're living in that period of time. We're living in that period of time. You know, we're living in prophetic times, historic times. We're approaching the end of the age. And yet when you look around our nation today, we seem to be fiddling while America is burning. Fiddling while America is burning. We're focused on our cell phones, our iPads, uh, uh, <clears throat> the social messages that we send back and forth. And yet our civilization is going down the tubes. Just to illustrate very quickly, a couple of books that have come out. It's interesting when you put some dates on these books. This one written by Carl Henry. He was an uh, evangelical theologian. The Twilight of a Great Civilization. The Twilight of a Great Civilization. He wrote it in 1988. 1988, almost, what, 20 years ago. But he saw some things that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Pat Buchanan, who ran for president a couple of times, was an advisor to three presidents, wrote a book in 2002 entitled The Death of the West. The Death of the West. He was saying, what, about uh, <clears throat> 14 years ago, the American civilization is going down the tubes. It's going down the tubes. Another book uh, I don't have here, but it's entitled When Nations Die. We've talked about this a number of times. America on the Brink, Ten Warning Signs of a Culture in Crisis. And he's saying America has all ten warning signs that we're heading down the wrong path. Now, many people realize this, but they don't know what the hope is. We've got a message that's very powerful that we can share with people what that hope is. What's interesting I have found was looking over some of these books, these are people that are trying to figure out what's wrong, why is it wrong, what is happening to us today. You know, the Beatles, as I mentioned, didn't seem so bad. They just had long hair, probably flea-bitten and <laughs> some other things, but they were, they were kids, mop-headed kids from Liverpool that played some rock and roll music. Again, it wasn't too bad when it started, but it got off into some really weird stuff. Uh, John Lennon wrote a song, Imagine. 
Talking about a utopia, imagine where there's no religion. No religion. Because in his mind, religion was part of the problem. He says, we're actually more popular than Beatles than Jesus Christ. This is where these guys were coming from. They were on a totally different planet. But in Henry's book, the subtitle of the book, The Twilight of a Great Civilization, the subtitle is The Drift Towards Neo-Paganism. The Drift Towards Neo-Paganism. And he basically begins to connect the dots of what's been happening in the country and why these things are happening. And he blames educational reformers in late 1800s, early 1900s, John Dewey being one of those. John Dewey was an atheist and a humanist. He did not believe in God. He believed there were no absolutes, there were no right and wrong. He believed that truth changes. It's not permanent, it changes. And he said there's no purpose in life. Now, the reason John Dewey is important, he went to Columbia University and he was involved with a school of education for training teachers for America. And these were the ideas that he injected into the teacher training programs that went from Columbia University all around the United States. One of his other comments was, it's not the job of teachers to point out the way. The job of a teacher is to uh, throw out all kinds of alternatives and let students make up their own minds. We're going to have a very different approach in the coming kingdom of God. We're going to be saying, this is the way. There is truth. It doesn't change. But we are reaping the seeds that have been sown down through the decades. He had a very interesting time, I think it was during... uh, Feast of Trumpets that weekend. I stayed with uh, Mr. Darrell Lovelady and his wife and family up in Tennessee. And uh, their daughter is training to be a veterinary technician. And she had a project. Her project was raising chickens. Raising chickens. And they'd made a little chicken coop that was a little bit bigger than uh, this podium up here, but it was on wheels, and they could move it around the backyard so that the chickens wouldn't, wear the grass out in one particular place. So we came back from uh, the Sabbath, I think it was, that there might have been might have been the holy day. We got home and they let the chickens out to walk through the backyard. So they were digging and digging up all the delicious things that chickens like to eat, you know, bugs and worms and grubs and <laughs> whatever else. Um, but <clears throat> as the sun was going down, Mr. Lovelay went up in the backyard and he had a little plate with some grain in it. And the chickens saw the grain and they started running towards him and uh, eating the grain out of the, the uh, plate. And he was throwing it on the grass. And this one chicken hopped up in my lap and was looking around, where's your grain? <laughs> I've never really wanted to have a pet chicken. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with it. I said, get out of here. But, you know, as it got dark the chickens all kind of ran over to the door and went back into the chicken coop. There was no bell that went off that said, you know, come home. As it got dark, they all ran into the chicken coop. And I've heard this expression, you've probably heard it it too, about the chickens coming home to roost. 
And what's happening in America today, the chickens are coming home to roost. These ideas that have been pumped into the educational system that there is no God and that the Bible is just another book and there's no such thing as right and wrong and there's no purpose of life. These things have been pumped into the minds of young people. If you turn to uh, Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4. Hosea is talking about the troubles that the Israelite nations are going to get into at the end of the age. Hosea chapter 4, and there's other chapters in the Bible that deal with the subject too. He said, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. It's not the Jews exclusively. This is the children of Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. They became 12 tribes. They became 12 nations that are basically now in northwestern Europe, Canada, America, South Africa, um, <clears throat> Australia, New Zealand, and a few other places around the world. But this is the point of his message. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. The Lord brings a charge against you. These are things that God is extremely upset about. There's no truth or mercy, or knowledge of God in the land, because it's been turned off. It's been turned off. Our Supreme Court said you can't pray in school anymore. And then you've got to take the Ten Commandments down that are in public buildings. People have been fired for keeping a Bible on their desk in school. This is the world we're living in today. And God says he's got an issue with you because there's no knowledge of God in the land by swearing... Lying, stealing, committing adultery, they break all restraints. The land will mourn, he said. Down in verse 5, he said, you're going to stumble in the day. The prophet will also stumble with you in the night. But then he says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. They don't understand what the truth is. They don't understand what true values are. They don't understand about the true God. He said, this is your fault. They don't understand. They have a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. You've looked in the wrong place. You've looked in the wrong place. I will also reject you from being a priest to me because you have forgotten the law of your God. And then he says, I will also forget your children. I'm going to forget your children. Down in verse 7 of uh, Hosea chapter 5, you can tie this with that previous verse. It says, They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, and they have begotten pagan children. That's in the New King James. It could be strange children, alien children. It's interesting when you look at some of these high school kids that are dressed in Gothic costumes with black lipstick and black robes and um, just weird looking. I think they keep Halloween 365 days a year. (laughs) But these are the trends today. But God says, you've forgotten me, and I'm going to forget your children. And you've begotten pagan children that don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't know what to believe. Down in verse 9, back in chapter 4. 
Let's start in verse 7. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on iniquity. And it shall be like the people, like the priest. But then he says, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. You're going to reap what is sown. The chickens are going to come home to roost. And it's not going to be a pleasant situation whenever we see all these things coming to pass. So this is what is happening in our country today. The idea is promoted by some of these educational reformers, they were called, are wreaking havoc in our society today. There are other books that point out how different these progressive ideas are from the ideas that dominated the thinking of men and women who settled in America in the 13 colonies in the 1700s, 1600s. came across a book recently entitled How Christianity Changed the World, and it talks about just the impact of, of worldly Christianity and how that changed the world. It's going to be interesting to see and exciting to see how real Christianity is going to change the world in the years not too far ahead of us. I want to comment just a little bit about the ideas that permeated the 13 colonies about 200 years ago and how much different that is from today. You know, England was settled by Puritans coming from England. We spent about nine years living in New England. We lived about 10 miles inland from Plymouth Rock, a little town called Bridgewater, which was the first inland settlement of the pilgrims. Uh, <clears throat> We tend to think of the Puritan or the uh, the people in the Mayflower as kind of well. They were the flopsam and jetsam <laughs> that fled England, went to Holland, and eventually got over here. But a significant number of the people on the Mayflower were graduates of two Puritan colleges in Cambridge. They were educated people. They were educated people. They read the Bible quite regularly. The Pilgrims arrived in. Massachusetts in 1620, but they established Harvard University in 1636, only 16 years later, and they started with only six students. Sounds like Ambassador College, or sounds like Living University. <laughs> Why did they start a college only 16 years after they got here? They wanted to have an educated ministry. They wanted to have an educated ministry they could read the Bible and teach others about it. Now, they didn't understand everything, but this was their goal. They believed in God. They named their kids Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they called their girls Abigail, Charity, uh, Faith, Patience. Uh, they were trying to live by the Bible. Uh, they wanted an educated ministry. And the students at Harvard were called the sons of the prophets. That's what the men that were trained by Samuel and Elijah were referred to in the Bible. They were pulling these terms out of the Bible, trying to follow them. About 90% of the colleges in America before the Civil War, so this would be in 1860, were started by churches. They were started by churches. The point I wanted to make here is that the Bible, as they understood it, 
permeated our society during those years. And many of the leaders in America were graduates of these colleges that were started by churches. Came across another book that uh, is very interesting just to look through. It's entitled God and America's Leaders. God and America's Leaders. And it has quotes about God, about the Bible, about Christianity from America's leaders down through about 200 years. And just to sample some of these things, what were the people like, what were the men like that graduated from these schools that were started by churches? George Washington, who was not an overly religious man, in fact, he was a Mason, and some people think he's a terrible guy because he was a Mason. My uncle was a Mason. He was not a terrible guy. <laughs> I think many people join the Masons because it's a social thing to do, and that's what business people do, and it's good for business. That way, he was a Mason, but George Washington also made the statement. He said, it is impossible. It is impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. I can't picture that coming from the mouths of some of our recent leaders. But this is where Washington was coming from. In 1777, the Continental Congress approved the purchase of 20,000 Bibles. This was during the Revolutionary War because the Bible, they said, was such an important book. We need to spend federal money <laughs> to buy Bibles. John Adams, second president of the United States, he said, I have examined all religions, and the Bible is the best book in the world. This was the second president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson, third president, now, he had his own issues. <laughs> But he understood certain concepts. He said, studying the Bible makes better citizens, better fathers, and better husbands. That's not what we're hearing today. We're hearing today that the Bible is outdated. We don't need it. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, it's just another book. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. So we're talking early 1800s. He said, I read four to five chapters of the Bible every morning. How many of you read four to five chapters every morning? Not that many. But you know, when you read four to five chapters every morning, that's going to affect how you think. You're going to pick up a sense of what's right and what's wrong. But the point I want to make is this is what America was like about 200 years ago. The most influential school book in America during the 1800s were what were called McGuffey readers. McGuffey readers. They were books basically of the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth grade. They were written by William McGuffey. He was actually a graduate of Washington Jefferson College, where I went to college. <laughs> but nobody said much about him. He was a Presbyterian minister. The reason he wrote the books was he wanted to incorporate and inculcate biblical principles in the minds of young people. They were trying to mold the minds of children, a young nation. In the 1860s, a guy by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville came to America. He was a young French diplomat. He was a historian he came here to study prisons in America, but he was impressed by what he saw. 
Uh, <clears throat> I just wanted to read this quote. He says, I sought for the greatness of America's genius. Now, he's a European coming over to America with a little bit of jealousy. Uh, but he was trying to figure out what do these Yanks do? What do they know that we don't know? Why are they becoming a powerful nation? He said, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors, in the beautiful harbors that they have that not other nations don't have quite as many, in her ample rivers. You know, the Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio system drains the whole central part of America, the richest farmlands in the world. It just happened to be here that God prepared. He said it was not there. That was not the source of their greatness. I looked in her fertile fields, boundless forests. It was not there. In her rich mines and the vast world commerce, it was not there. In her democratic Congress and its matchless constitution, it was not there. He said it was not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. One of the things we need to understand when we read these quotes from uh, de Toikville, he said, it was not till I saw the pulpits aflame with righteousness. They didn't understand the full truth, but they were trying to teach people, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery, those types of things. He said, America is great because America is good. But if America ever ceases to be good, it's not going to be great. And we are ceasing to be good today. We're moving in a very different direction. One of the reasons that de Toikville was so impressed with what he heard in churches, you need to understand just a little bit about the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The American Revolution was to throw off the shackles of the British government with God's help. With God's help, they prayed every morning during the Continental Congress and asked God to intervene to protect them. And they saw God answering those prayers. The French Revolution was to throw off the authority of the French government and to throw out religion, basically the Catholic Church. They wanted to get rid of religion and replace it with reason following the writings of Voltaire and Rousseau. But when de Toikville came to this country and saw the role that religion was playing in our country, he was shocked. He said, that appears to be the major difference, that this was a religious society, whereas France was a secular republic. I remember walking into one of the big, what used to be a big church in Belgium, it was a big church at one time, but after the revolution, it was proclaimed the temple of reason. <laughs> the temple of reason. They'd thrown off religion. It's going to be interesting to see. I think it's going to be very sobering to see what is going to happen in this country as religion goes down the tubes, even if it's uh, a very different Christian religion. But these are the things that have been happening in our country one of the things that um, <clears throat> David Capellian brings out, he brings it out in his book, but also uh, Patrick Buchanan brings it out in The Demise of the West or The Decline of the West. There were a couple of other things that happened. 
William McGuffey lived basically between 1800 and 1859, 1860, Civil War time. John Dewey was born about 19, or about 1860, and his influence basically impacted America, the latter part of the 1800s, early 1900s. But there's a group of men came over from Europe that were part of what is called the Frankfurt School. These were German intellectuals. They left Germany. They were promoting Marxist ideas, communist ideas. They came to America, interestingly enough, to Columbia University, where John Dewey was. And they were basically wanting to promote Marxism in America, undermine Western civilization, destroy the country with basically Marxist ideas. Now, we don't think much about Karl Marx because well, he started communism and it's failed. But these guys were promoting what they called neo-Marxism. Marx's revolution failed. That is the violent one in Russia. Didn't work out well. But the neo-Marxists have what they call, wanted to wage what they called cultural terrorism. Cultural terrorism. To destroy our country. To destroy the Western world. I think we're all familiar with uh, Marx's statement where he says religion is the opiate of the people. The people take it like a drug so they can deal with the problems of life. But a couple of other quotes from Marx. He said, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. To dethrone God and destroy capitalism. He said, the first requisite to happiness for people is the abolition of religion. These were the ideas that these guys brought over from Germany. And they began promoting these ideas among intellectuals, among teachers. Their goal was to capture the culture by invading the institutions in America. Invade the schools, invade the teachers, invade the courts. And said eventually as we capture the culture, the government will fall into our hands and we will be in power. Now, these are the things Kupelian brings out quite clearly as chapter 2 is a very interesting chapter to read through. Uh, Patrick Buchanan brings these things out. Their goal in cultural terrorism was to change the culture. And we have a man in office today that wanted to change. Now, he didn't tell you what he wanted to change. But this is where he's coming from. He wanted to change the culture. The way they wanted to change the culture was to promote sex education in grade school. Just all kind of things. Make divorce easy. One of the first things Lenin did when he gained power in Russia was to pass no-fault divorce legislation. And this whole thing was designed to destroy the family. Destroy the family. They wanted to get women out of the home and into the workforce because they wouldn't be mothers anymore. They wanted to promote sexual liberation, perversion, and pornography. Establish government child care so that the mother is no longer involved in raising children. They put everybody on welfare, then they undermine the influence and the need for fathers. 
It's no accident that these policies are part of the policies of the Democratic Party today because they've been influenced by these men that came over. One other guy just to mention, Herbert Marcuse. You can look this up on the Internet. He's called the father of the new left. He was part of this Frankfurt School. And he was the guy that came up with or fostered the idea, make love, not war, that the hippies picked up on and began promoting in the 60s and the 70s. The point I want to make here is these are the seeds that have been planted that we're reaping today. And this is what our country needs to come to understand. Not everybody's reading these books, but they lay this out connecting the dots in a very sobering way. This goal of change that the Democratic Party has and these Marxists had was to redistribute wealth, take it from the rich, give it to the poor, and redistribute power. So, brethren, today, what we're seeing today in America and in Western nations are really the chickens coming home to roost. Carl Henry, I think he picked up on the paganism that was being pumped into our school systems and into the minds of leaders. Capellian and uh, Pat Buchanan have picked up on where these Marxists brought in certain ideas and they're being promoted by people that we now have in office. So it's no wonder why people don't see a whole lot of hope for the future. We've been set up. We've been set up. What does this have to do with you and with me? and with the church of God. God has given us some very powerful tools to work with. You know, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, God made some promises, very exciting promises. Let's go back and just read that quickly. Because this is the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of a story. It's the Old Testament. Many Protestants and Catholics today don't go here for instruction. I've had the chance to teach Old Testament survey for a number of years, and I listened to a, a set of tapes or a set of discs by a woman who's teaching Old Testament survey at Vanderbilt. And I thought, I'd just like to listen to it to see where she's coming from. And it was quite interesting. She said, the Old Testament is just filled with such wonderful stories. <laughs> Not lessons, but wonderful stories. And she goes into the stories, and then at the very end, she says, I'm sorry, we're at the end of the class, and I haven't had time to tell you all the rest of the stories. But she never mentioned one lesson. Never mentioned anything about the identity of Israel or the promises to Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was told, verse 1, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to the land I'm going to show you, and I will make you a great nation. And bless you. I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, basically, to the entire world. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. That's a promise. I'll bless those that bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth, they'll be blessed through you. And you can go through the rest of the book of Genesis, how these promises were expanded to include gates and of their enemies, uh, Just incredible blessings. But the condition, these are all conditional blessings or conditional promises. And the condition was, 
If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. If you obey me, I'm going to bless you. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is just before the Israelites went into the promised land. Moses is talking with the descendants of those that, the children basically, of those that came out of Egypt and died in the wilderness. So he's reviewing the covenant with these children of Israel before they go into the promised land. Very powerful, informative chapter. Verse 1, he says, Listen, O Israel, to the statutes and judgments which I give you to observe. Now, why were they given? You know, people today are being told that the laws of God are a burden. You know, you just can't keep them and they're difficult. But he says, I'm giving you these laws that you may live, that your life will go better, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God, your fathers, is giving to you. Don't add to the word. Don't take away from it. Just do it. Just do it. As one of the young ladies said in the film that we put together on Living University, (laughs) don't listen to doubters. Just do it. Just do it. And God is saying basically the same thing here. Just just do it. Just do what I've asked you to do instead of coming up with all kind of other interpretations. Verse 5, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord. Moses is saying this. My God commanded me. Verse 6, Therefore be careful to observe them. You know, Follow these laws. Don't push them away. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's. As the world sees you living by these commandments. You know, we're told in the Bible that uh, homosexuality is an abomination. It's an abomination to God. It's an abomination because he said this is going to hurt you. This lifestyle is going to kill you. Why do homosexuals live about 20 years less? Their lifespan is shorter than the average lifespan. Why do they come down with AIDS, HIV, and things like that? Opportunistic infections more than anybody else. Because these viruses destroy their immune system. And then they rot from the inside out. God says, don't do this because it's going to kill you. And yet people today in schools are told, well, this is just an alternative lifestyle. It's just an alternative lifestyle. It's just as normal as anything else. That's a bunch of bunk. It's wrong. It's totally wrong. It's a high-risk lifestyle. And people that go in that direction are going to pay for it. They're going to die. It's going to hurt them. God is a God of love. He said, look, I'm giving you these laws so that the world can see you living by them and see that you're blessed. Verse 9, he says, only take heed to yourself and keep yourself or keep and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things you have seen and teach these things to your children. And you can read the latter part of the chapter. He says, if you forget, you go off in another direction. Verse 26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and will be, and you will be left few in number. So he says, these are the consequences that are going to come if you move in a wrong direction. 
And these things are repeated again in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where Moses warned the Israelites, if you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be punished. You're going to reap what you sow. Turn to Leviticus, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28, verse 20, for just a minute. And this is part of the blessings and cursings. If you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you turn away, there's going to be problems. And we're heading into this period of time. We're beginning to reap these consequences. But in Deuteronomy 28, verse 20, it says, The Lord will send on you cursing and confusion. That is, if you disobey God. Cursing and confusion will rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings. What Moses told the Israelite was, your downfall is going to come suddenly. You're going to quickly perish. And this is mentioned about a half a dozen times in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. It talks about the buckling of a wall that begins to buckle and all of a sudden it just explodes and everything breaks apart. He said, your downfall is going to come suddenly. And people are going to be surprised. Why is God doing this to us? You know, we're a Christian nation, supposedly. A lot of our people go to church. There was a Barna study came out recently. It said about 75% of Americans claim to be Christians. But about 48% of Americans don't practice their religion. They're post-Christian. <laughs> They're post-Christian. Almost half of our nation. That was not the, the way it was back in the 1700s, early 1800s, where some, they estimated in New England about 95% of people in New England claimed to be Christians. Now 75% do, and yet half of them are post-Christian. They don't live according to what they profess. God says, your downfall is going to come suddenly. And like I said, about half a dozen other scriptures say exactly the same thing. So people are going to be or be caught short when all this begins to happen. Why is it coming? Jeremiah chapter 2. Go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2 is kind of a summary chapter. <clears throat> It's interesting how Isaiah and Jeremiah kind of summarize some things at the very beginning, then they go into details in later chapters. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Israel. And the house of Israel had made up of 12 tribes. And all the families of the house of Israel, house of Jacob, house of Israel. This includes the Jews, but it also includes 11 other tribes. What injustice have, you, have your fathers found in me? Look, I gave you blessings. I gave you a country. I've given you my laws. What's the problem? What's the problem? What injustice have you found in me that they have gone far from me and have followed other gods and become idolaters? Down in verse 9, which sounds somewhat like Hosea, therefore I will yet bring charges against you. This is the issues that I have with you. Verse 11, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? Other heathen nations haven't changed their gods, but you have. But my people have changed my glory or their glory 
talking about God. They've turned away from me. Verse 13, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, turned their back on God, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn themselves cisterns or broken cisterns that can hold no water. When we were in Jordan for about a month over there, we were at an archaeological dig up north of uh, Amman. It was an area where there was a lot of granite uh, or basalt, I think it was. So some volcanic activity was there, the basalt hardened, and you had these basalt rocks. So they were actually digging. Somehow they were, were cutting rocks out of the big chunks of basalt, and they were making long uh, rocks about, about three feet long that were about six inches uh, thick and maybe 12 inches wide. And they were cantilevering these things to actually make roofs on, <laughs> on their houses. Now you have these rocks cantilevered together and then an earthquake came along. You just, pfft, everything fell down. It was like stickle stackers without the stickles. <laughs> and with a little shaking, everything came apart. But where they cut the basalt uh, out of the big rocks, left a big hole. So they made cisterns out of that. They collected rainwater there. God's talking about making cisterns that don't hold any water. Talking about the idolatry and turning to other gods. Talks about you're going to be punished as a result of that, but notice in verse 17, have you not brought these things on yourself, these consequences, in that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way, led you out of Egypt? Down in verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that is an evil, bitter thing that you've forsaken the Lord your God and the fear of the Lord is not in you. You We don't fear God today. We break the Sabbath, we break the holy days, we don't tithe, we do all these things. We just don't fear God today as a nation. And yet 200 years ago, there was a fear. There was a fear. They understood things, certain things that we have forgotten today. There was a guy, by the, an author by the name of uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote a novel entitled The Scarlet Letter. Now, Hawthorne lived in the early 1800s during this Puritan influence. And the story was a woman got pregnant. And uh, you learn in the story that the man that got her pregnant was the minister. <laughs> but her punishment was to wear a scarlet letter, a big A, on her dress. They told everybody she was an adulteress. She never ratted on the guy and he never admitted the mistake. But this was also talking about the hypocrisy of that time. But that was the punishment in that society for a woman that committed adultery. You had to publicly acknowledge. Can you picture what would happen in Hollywood? If we did the same thing today, people might be wearing A's all over their suits because they were serial adulterers. They might be wearing big F's, fornicators. And the press would probably come up with a monthly award, a PM award, the pervert of the month award, (laughs) as various people come out of the closet. This is sad, really. If we try to do something like happened in uh, Washington, Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, 
the American Civil Liberties Union would go nuts. They would be filing lawsuits all over the place. The Supreme Court justices would go nuts. They would they wouldn't stand for something like that today. But in colonial America, there was a, an appreciation of values that we've totally lost today. Because we don't believe in God seriously today. Again, what does this have to do with us? Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel 33. We've got a mission. We've been given a commission to deliver a warning whenever we see things happening in our society that are going to destroy our society today. Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel is told by God, verse 1, Son of man, eat what you find. In other words, eat this scroll. And go speak to the house of Israel, not just to the Jews, but the whole house of Israel. Verse 4, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak uh, with my words to them. Verse 17, Son of man, I've made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give warning to these people from me. And you can read the rest of the chapter here in Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33. It says, if you see things coming... You see things coming, and you don't warn, and people die. Their blood is going to be on your shoulders. But if you see things coming, and you warn people, and they repent, they change, they leave this world, come out of this world, you're going to save yourself, and you're going to save those people. As we see what's happening in our country today, And in the Western world today, we've got a job to warn these people. You know, we know who modern Israel is today. Billy Graham doesn't. Some of these other religious leaders don't. They will not hear. It's going to take something more, a rod of iron. God shaking the world to actually get their attention. It's going to take our peoples going into some sort of captivity. Things are not going to get good. They're going to get worse. But we know who Israel is. We know where the Israelites are today. We know the prophecies about them, that they're going to be punished. They're going to have to change if they want to escape from some of these things. So we can explain who we are to the people, why we've been blessed, why those blessings are going to be taken away. We can also explain how we've been deceived. Satan is the god of this world who has deceived this world. But as some of these authors are bringing out, they're explaining why and how we've been deceived. We've been deceived by religious leaders who began promoting Christmas and Easter and Sunday worship and things like that. And Jeremiah talks about that. Jeremiah 23, verse 13, is these false preachers, these false leaders who've led you off in the wrong direction. But Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 3.12, he says, your leaders, and he's talking about political leaders there, intellectual leaders, your leaders have caused you to err. They've pointed you down a wrong direction. They said there's no God, there's no purpose in life. We have got the most incredible purpose that's revealed in the scriptures for anybody to understand. We understand that God is real. He's alive. He's not a delusion. Like Richard Dawkins says, 
No, God is real. He does take a hand in history when He decides to do that. He will elevate nations and He will bring nations down according to His plan and purpose. Nations that turn away from Him, they're going to be very serious consequences. So we have a powerful message to deliver. How we've been deceived, how we've been misguided. We've got a job to do. Turn to Revelation 3. And we're just about done. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. It's talking about the Philadelphia era of the church of God. Verse 8, it says, I know your works. We heard a sermonette about works. We've got a job to do coming back from the feast. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door. We've got radio, television, the internet, and a bunch of other things today that the apostles did not have that no one can shut. Now, the Europeans are going to try and shut off the Internet. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. For you have a little strength, which is basically us today. You kept my word, you not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, you've continued doing the job I've given you to do. I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. It's talking about protection during the tribulation. This is what's there for people that are willing to do the work that we have to do today. And if you have that option, don't don't play games with that. Because there are a lot of people, I think, and will find out as this begins to happen, wow, I wish I would have done this or wish I'd have done that. It's going to be too late by that time. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which is going to come upon the whole world. Behold, I come quickly. And as these trials and tribulations are going to come quickly and catch people by surprise, behold, I come quickly, hold fast to what you have that no one takes your crown. We've got to become overcomers. Revelation 11. Revelation 11, verses 15 through 18 mentions that the last trump, Jesus Christ, is going to return. And the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. And he's going to reign forever on this earth. But the latter part of verse 18, it mentions the nations were angry, your wrath has come, the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear his name, and great, and shall destroy those who destroy the earth. Christ is coming back to reward his servants, the prophets and the saints. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament were active from roughly about 800 B.C. to about 400 B.C., about 400 years. They were active during the demise of Israel and Judah. The reason God called the prophets is because the priesthood and the Levites had become corrupt. So he called individuals to do a job, to warn kings, to warn the people, and to warn the nation about what was coming, and to tell them there was something better coming. God provided prophets in the Old Testament for his chosen people. We've got a job to prophesy today to the peoples of Israel. Tell them who they are why we've been blessed, why we are such a unique country, that God is real, that this book is not just another book, 
It's totally unique. It's inspired by God. And the world today needs to hear these things, need to understand these things. We've got this opportunity today to teach the world about the true God. He's alive. He's well. (laughs) He's not asleep. He's not sitting in a rocking chair or a recliner watching world events. He's guiding world events. This book contains prophecies that have revealed the future about what is happening today, why it's happening, and what's ahead. It's a very sobering future for the Israelite nations and for the world, but it's also a very exciting future when we understand that the kingdom of God is coming and Christ is coming back to set that up. Brethren, with this understanding of who Israel is, what the truth is, let's put our hearts in the work and do the job that has been given to us with all of our might. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Let's use the time that we have to recapture true values and prepare to restore a knowledge of God, a knowledge of right religion, a knowledge of right government, and a knowledge of right education so that the peoples of this world can live a better life and that we can receive the rewards that Christ is bringing when he comes back if we've done our job. So brethren, let's focus on the year coming ahead. We've got a big challenge to do to reach people today who doubt God, who doubt the Bible, who think the book is the Bible is just another book, who have been told there's no purpose in life, and people who are just not interested in religion anymore. We've got a job to do. Let's work together to make these things happen and to be instruments in God's hands.